singing tonight. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter number 7. Luke chapter number 7 this evening in the Word of God. Any good to be back in the house of God? Amen. A lot of us could be a lot of other places. Amen. I'm thankful we're here tonight. A lot of us ought to be a lot of other places. What I mean is broke down, messed up, behind bars, laying in a graveyard somewhere, but for the grace of God. Amen. But the grace of God intervened in our life changed our destiny, and I'm thankful for that tonight. Luke chapter 7, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 11. Luke chapter 7, verse number 11. Word of God says, And it came to pass the day after that he, that's Jesus, he went into a city called Nain. Many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. Much people of the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. This rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about him. And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. When the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went you out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind. What went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Now let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. Lord, what a precious thing it is. Uh, so often we come in on a Sunday night, we might be weary, we might be how we feel on the tail end of our day. But Lord, it is a high and holy privilege that we have a place to worship, that we as uh, broken and lost sinners were able to be saved by your grace, redeemed, positioned and planted here in this place, and that we of all people might be able to come into your house of all places and worship you of all those that the world claims to be God. We know the real God, the true God. What a blessing, what an amazing thing that we're here tonight. I pray we'd not take it for granted. Lord, I pray that we would not view this as a moment of uh, mediocrity, of, of duty merely alone and, and of just uh, going through the motions, but rather an opportunity to hear from heaven, 
and for you to work in our hearts and lives. We'll be sure to thank you for what is accomplished. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read in Luke chapter number 7, we began probably a little earlier in the reading than what most people do when they approach this passage concerning John. I do want to preach on John tonight. He will be the focus of our message. But we find that really this interaction uh, between the disciples of John and the Lord Jesus, when we might say more broadly this difficult season that John is going through, seems to begin much earlier than when he sends his disciples. In fact, the Bible tells us after this young man is raised from the dead that it was that miracle and the uh, great fame that arose regarding the Lord Jesus that really prompted the uh, the difficulty that John was experiencing. I'm going to use this word tonight, the crisis that John was going through. Uh, John is going through one of the most uh, difficult and trying seasons of his life. There is much we do not know about John the Baptist. If a man wanted to give a thorough biography, he'd probably have to do a lot of speculation. For most of what we know about John, we know about him because of his relationship to Jesus. You know, that's not by accident. Uh, the, John's merit and value and worth was only what it was because of who he was relative to Jesus. Can I make this statement to you tonight? If you and I are anything, it's only because we know Jesus. Amen. Uh, who and what we are is only of value and importance because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus. And so there's much that we would have to speculate, really, if we wanted to speak about John the Baptist. But there are essentially only two or three main things that we know about him. One, we know that he was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. He was met with much success early in his ministry. The Bible tells us of how all Judea would go out and would hear John the Baptist and how the common people heard him and received him gladly. Uh, we know that he was rejected by the spiritual leadership there uh, in Jerusalem. How that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin would be the name for that group, uh, combined how that they rejected John. Uh, they did not want to receive the witness of John. Then we know how John winds up in prison. We know, and, and you can read in Matthew chapter 14, we'll read about it here in a little while, how that John took a bold stand against Herod because of his iniquity, because of his sin, and in response, Herod put John in prison. And then we have the episode before us here. I would say this tonight, that of all that we know about John the Baptist, I think we would all agree that this is the lowest moment in this man's life. And yet I find when I read the testimony of the Lord Jesus concerning John, John does not, God, God does not speak of John, the Lord Jesus does not speak of John in critical terms. Rather, it seems to me, if I read my Bible right, it sort of seems like the Lord Jesus is upbraiding those that are around Him. For He knows their thoughts. He knows that they are uh, thinking uh, critically and cynically about John. And He turns around and begins to upbraid them and begins to show them that this is not a moment of shame for John, but rather this is part of the natural course of His decreasing while the Lord Jesus increases. And He sort of begins to fuss at him and say, Hey, you know, after all, what did you go out there to see? You know, did you go out there to see a reed shaking with the wind? Or did you go out there to see somebody that take a stand against things? Can I say this? If we ain't nothing, we ought to be somebody that takes a stand against things. Uh, I Listen, I may not be able to be good at things, but I can at least be mean. Somebody say amen. No, we ought not be mean, but we uh, listen, I can at least be faithful. I, I, I may not be a superstar, but I can stand for what's right. 
I, I, I can do the right thing. Amen. And, and the Lord Jesus, He turns and says, did you just go out there to see a reed blowing around in the wind or did you go to see somebody that would suffer for what they believed was right? He, he looks at him and He says, when you went out there, did you go out there to see someone living in the lap of luxury? Did you go out to see uh, one of these health and wealth uh, preachers? Uh, did, did you go, uh, go out there looking for Creflo Dollar? Or did you go out there looking for a prophet? Of course, they'd have to say, we went looking for a prophet. He'd say, well, why do you think he's any less prophet just because he's laying down in a prison house in prison garbs now? He says, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? And of course, he knows their hearts that they're saying, yeah, that's what. And he said, yeah, that is what you went out to see. And that is what you saw. You saw the voice of God proclaiming forth the Word of God for this nation and this generation. And he then says this about John, which I find fascinating. Uh, he says down, uh, let me find it here in our text. I want to read it. I don't want to quote it to you. Down in verse uh, number 28, he says, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Uh, in other words, we could say this. I, I, when I read this text, and I'm trusting the Lord to help me get my thoughts together, preach a little bit here. Uh, when I read this text, here's what I find. I find that John is not a low man. John is a great man. He is not a small man. He is a great man. He is not a coward, but he is a bold man. We could say this, that it would not be a stretch to say that he is the greatest of men apart from the Lord Jesus. And yet in this moment, we don't find him up on the mountaintop. We find him at the lowest of low places. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. The lowest moment of the greatest man. Can I serve notice on you tonight? I don't care how great you are. You're going to have low moments. I don't care how together you feel like you've got it. There's going to be days where it's all coming apart. I don't care how, how resolved you feel and confident you feel in your grasp of life. There's going to be days that it all tailspins out of control. And on those days, I just wonder if the faith we have in the Lord Jesus runs deep enough to hold us true in faithfulness under our commitment unto Him. I wonder if we, like John, uh, don't have moments of questioning. But can I say this for John? I'm getting ahead in my message. Uh, can I say this for John? He wasn't a quitter. He didn't quit, did he, Brother Ken? Uh, what we learn is that his head wound up on a platter because of his stand for the Lord Jesus. Now let me say this. Uh, there's a lot of folks it's easy to criticize because they may not have the scope of ministry or they may not have the scope of reach or they may not have the praise of men. Uh, but I just, listen, I want to surround myself with folks that just stay true to the Word of God. I may not be able to take the world by storm, but hey, listen, I hope I can be a grain of sand in the devil's eye. I would say this, that when we approach this passage, we see four distinct thoughts. I'm going to give them to you tonight. I don't know if I ain't helping you in the preaching or you ain't helping me in the preaching, but we better figure this out before we're done. Amen. It's going to be a long three and a half hours. So... <laughs> Let me say a word tonight first about the reasons for this crisis. The Bible gives us information about why it was that John is struck with this great crisis of his faith. And we find that it basically boils down to about four things. Number one, let me say tonight, we see when we read the history of John, the personal misery of John. John is not in a good place in his life. In fact, it doesn't say it in our text, but in uh, Matthew's account we are told uh, that whenever uh, these disciples are sent, they are sent from John while John is sitting in prison. Matthew 11.2 tells us this, that when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. 
Uh, we could read the whole story in Matthew 14 of everything that happened, but just two verses will suffice uh, to explain to us why John is there. It says in verse 3, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. Philip, uh, Herod had took his brother's wife and John stood in boldness condemning that sin and uh, publicly decrying and denouncing the sin of Herod. Let me tell you this, when you start pointing out politicians' iniquity, that is a quick way to wind up behind bars. Somebody say amen. And we're going to learn that more in these coming years, by the way, uh, as it becomes more common to criminalize disagreement and dissent and criticism of, of public officials. But this ain't nothing new. John experienced this. And John is, I would say this, suffering for his stand for the Lord Jesus. I wish I could tell you that you will always be met with sweeping success when you stand for God, but I would have to lie to you to tell you that. There's going to be days that your testimony for the Lord Jesus does not win friends and influence people. It does not advance you in society. There's going to be days, thank the Lord, that, that people will see the witness of Christ in our life and it will mean something to Him. But there's going to be a lot of days when the world will not be interested, will not care what you're doing for God. And in fact, when you serve God, it's not going to make things easier on you. It'll make things harder on you. John has experienced a great conflict and affliction in his life. I wish, listen, I wish the, I wish the, the prosperity gospel preachers was right. Amen. Maybe we'd be able to buy a new building or something. Amen. But they're not. The truth of the matter is there's going to be times in serving God that you will not be met with what the world would call favor and blessing, but it's going to bring suffering and affliction. You better steal yourself for those moments. Uh, listen, one of the things that's so dangerous about that prosperity gospel is it makes people think that when something goes wrong in their life, God fell off the throne. Uh, it makes them think when they, when they wind up with cancer, God fell off the throne. It makes them think when they wind up bankrupt, God fell off the throne. It makes them think when the kids go buck wild, it's because God fell off the throne. Hey, the truth of the matter is, uh, this life is a weary life and this world is a weary world. And as long as we are in this world, we are strangers, we are pilgrims. We better not drive our tent stakes too deep because this world is not our home. We're going to experience misery and affliction in this life. A lot of times if we don't ready ourselves for that with the right mindset and perspective, it can lead to a crisis of faith. You know, I think, and I don't want to be critical of John the Baptist because uh, one because he sounds like he's tough and one day I'll get to heaven and he might whoop me. Amen. And uh, I'd be hiding behind Peter saying, get him, Peter. Get him. And don't let him whoop me. Amen. Uh, but, uh, I, but, but I but I would say this about John. Uh, John's entire message of preaching the gospel was centered not on a cross, but on a kingdom. He was the one that was to proclaim that the Messiah had come and that people were to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It don't seem to be turning out the way you expect it, does it? I will say more about that here in a moment. But I'd say this, when we get too obsessed with the notion of temporal relief in this life, it can lead to a crisis in our faith. I'm not saying John was wrong for his perspective. He had a unique role dispensationally in the plan of God. I would say this, if John could have seen the church age, seen Calvary, understood that that dispensation of the mystery of the will of God that Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, if he could have understood that they weren't headed to a crown, they was headed to a cross, it might have helped him a little bit because right now he's sitting down in the jailhouse saying, this ain't adding up. It don't make sense. From what I know of God's plan, Brother Ken, and what's going on in my life, this does not make sense. But you know, often God's not going to make sense to you. Often God's not going to make sense to you. 
Often he ain't going to make sense. Now I'm not saying he is, he is nonsensical in who he is or what he does or what he says. I'm saying that a lot of times the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God for they are spiritually discerned. He cannot, he cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. There's going to be a lot of times what God does don't make sense to you. And if your concept of God is if He's not blessing me and spreading rose petals in front of my footsteps, if He's not coming down and fixing every problem that I get myself into and every single mistake that I make, He just comes over and smooths it over like newly poured concrete. If He don't do that, He ain't much of a God. Well, you ain't going to think He's much of a God. It led to a crisis of faith because of what He was going through. I think His personal misery was part of it. Then I would say, number two, the public miracles of Christ are part of what led to His crisis of faith. Now you say, but preacher, how could you say that? Well, I'm not saying it. The Word of God says it. It says down in verse 18, the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Well, what are all these things? Well, look what it says in verse 11. It says, it came to pass the day after that he, Jesus, went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Much people of the city was with her, and when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Now the immediate context of this passage, it speaks of other miracles, but it speaks predominantly of that one. This was an unusual thing. Anytime the dead was raised, it was an unusual thing. And John hears that Jesus is out there raising the dead. And that's part of what led to this crisis. You say, Preacher, how, why is that? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I hate to say this because maybe I'm speculating just an ounce, but I don't think it's a far stretch to think that John may have been sitting there thinking, why can he raise the dead but he can't get me out of prison? Why can he do this for other people but he ain't doing it for me? Why is it that, that it's not too big of a job for him to reach down and literally pull someone out of the bondage of death, but he can't pull me out of Herod's grasp? If your perspective of God is predicated on this, uh, you know, little league t-ball notion of fairness, that if God don't do for you what He does for somebody else, it ain't going to be long. You're going to be messed up and out. There's going to be times God's going to do things in other people's lives. And here's the truth of the matter. You don't always see what God's doing and why He's doing it. It might be the withholding of that thing in your life is more of a blessing than the bestowing of that thing in another man's life. Uh, John is fulfilling a distinct special role in the plan of God. And I'd say this, I don't know what that young man's name was uh, from the city of Nain, but I sure enough know John the Baptist's name. The only thing I know about that man is that uh, the Lord Jesus raised him from the dead. But here's what I know about John. There was never a greater born among women than John the Baptist. And yet in that moment, no doubt John is thinking, you know, why is he doing for everybody else what, what he is not doing for me? Let me go a step further. I think he was probably thinking, I'm not even asking God to do that. God's doing more for them than he's doing for me. I'm not asking God to raise me from the dead. I'm just asking him to keep me from the executioner's axe. And yet God is raising that young man from the dead and leaving me to lay up here in prison. If you're constantly, if your relationship with God is centered upon always looking outward like a goldfish in a fishbowl at what's going on in everybody else's life, you're going to wind up discouraged. Because you don't have infinite knowledge, just like I don't have infinite knowledge. It's enough to know that God's good to us. I'm just going to go ahead and say it again, just to help me, even if it don't help you. It's enough to know that God is good to us. It's enough to know. You say, preacher, what about them? Well, God will be good to them. But that ain't my business. 
My business is God's been awful good to me. He said, but preacher, what if He ain't as good to me as He is to somebody else? It's far better to you than you ever deserved. Get your eyes off of what other people are experiencing and get your eyes on the Lord. So I would say the, the public miracles of Christ. Number three, I would say this, the praised ministry of Christ. Look down at verse 16. It says there came a, a fear on, the, on all. Now this is after Jesus raises this young man from the dead. It says there came a fear on all and they glorified God saying that a great prophet is risen up among us and that God hath visited His people. And this rumor of Him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. It's in that very next verse that it says that when the disciples of John heard this, they told Him of it and He was discouraged. I would say it this way, the praised ministry of Christ led to this crisis of faith. Uh, maybe we're being very closely aligned with what we said in our prior point, but let me just say it this way. Sometimes when we're not in a good place, it can hurt to hear the goodness of God in other people's lives. I would even go a step further and say this. John is watching his greatest dreams being fulfilled outside of a prison cell while he's inside of a prison cell. His function, his role, his meaningfulness in life seems to have overtaken him and be taken off without Him. What is His one purpose? It's to be the voice that paves the way. And yet now, Brother Charlie, uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking for Himself. And John has faded, diminished into the background. And now, the only space he occupies is that prison cell in Herod's prison. Sometimes when we feel as though our sense of purpose has been diminished, or degraded, or demoted, it can lead to this crisis of faith. You know, John was a human being like anyone else. And I'd say this, if anybody don't have reason to be judgmental of John, it's us. You know why? Because we sit here as New Testament indwelt, perpetually indwelt by the Spirit of God, born again believers. I know that the Holy Ghost left inside the womb of Elizabeth uh, whenever John was uh, was a baby inside that womb, but we have no reason to believe that John was perpetually indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God the way a New Testament saying is. I'm saying we got more than what John had. We got more than what John had. John is a human being and he is struggling and he is experiencing this crisis of faith. It is easy to look back critically and cynically, but the truth is we fall into the same trap that John often does as well. John was facing this because though he had always said he must increase and I must decrease, it's one thing to say you're decreasing, it's another thing to sense that you're decreasing. It's one thing to say I want it to be all about him and none at all about me, but don't we get all bowed up when all of a sudden it ain't about us. It ain't about John no more. In fact, the very thing John was doing is going on while John ain't even there to do that very thing. I'd say the praise ministry of Christ. But then I think there is a deeper meaning here. I want you to think about this with me. Think about the Lord Jesus' reply. You remember how the Lord replies to him after he performs uh, these miracles. He says in verse 22, Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, we have read that so many times in our life, I think it is easy to just view that as a generic defense of his messianic uh, position. John is asking, are you the Messiah? Or do we need to look somewhere else? And Jesus replies back and says, I'm everything that they said the Messiah was going to be. Uh, all of these things that he denotes and lists 
are really derived from some prophecies in the book of Isaiah that hearken the coming of the Messiah. But you know what I find interesting? Christ's reply seems to draw from three different messianic passages from the book of Isaiah. Let me read them to you very quickly. The first is in Isaiah 35, 3-6. The Bible says this about concerning the coming Messiah. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. All that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus says, isn't it? When He says, hey, listen, the dead are being raised, the blind eyes are being opened, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the dumb are speaking. All these things that God said would happen when the Messiah comes, He says they're happening right now. Another place that it seems to draw from is in Isaiah 42. Well, let me read one other one to you first. In Isaiah 61, uh, there is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And actually, the Lord Jesus quotes this about Himself in Luke chapter number 4. Do you remember when he's in the temple and he goes in he begins to... They hand him the book of Isaiah and he opens it to a certain place and he begins to read. And the Bible says when he was done, all their eyes were fastened upon him. Well, he's reading this passage from Isaiah 61. Listen to what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. The way the Lord Jesus quotes it in Luke 4 is to preach the gospel to the poor. Exactly what He says here in Luke 7 when He sends back word concerning John. The poor are having the gospel preached unto them. You know I'm the Messiah because I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. But it not only says that, it says uh, that uh, the, to preach uh, it hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. But now listen to this. He don't quote this part in Luke chapter number 7 when he's speaking to John. It says to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. In Isaiah 42, something similar is said. Verse number 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. By the way, it's the only time in the Old Testament, uh, it's the only time in the whole Bible that the word elect is used referring to an individual. It's used referring to groups of people, but that's the only time it's used referred to an individual. And who's the elect? The elect is the Lord Jesus. Say, preacher, how do I become a part of the elect? The Calvinist wants you to believe you either is or you ain't. But uh, the Bible tells us clearly how to become part of the elect. Jesus is the elect, and if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You say, preacher, I just wish I was part of the elect. Well, then get in then get and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be part of that elect. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. He says this, I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now down in verse 7 he says this, to open the blind eyes, to bring out of the prison, out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. You say, preacher, you read all that and that's an interesting Bible study, but what does it mean? Well, I would say it this way. Four things that prompted this crisis. One is the personal misery of John. Another is the public miracles of Christ. Another is the praised ministry of Christ. But then I would say this, what about the prophecies missing from Christ? Here is the way that I think John would say it. Uh, here's why I'm doubting you, Jesus, because you are 90% of what I expect you to be. You are almost everything I thought you'd be. But when it comes to how I'm suffering... You don't seem to be doing what I anticipated you doing. 
You're opening the eyes of the blind. You're raising the dead. You're opening the ears of the deaf. You're loosening the tongue of the dumb. What about those prisoners sitting in the prison house? Jesus, wouldn't it be an awfully good time to prove you're the Messiah and get a prisoner out of prison here? I would say this, very often God acts in ways we don't anticipate. And it, listen, if, if your notion of God is if He ever moves and operates outside of the spectrum of how I know Him and understand Him to be, then He must not be who He says He is. I'm sorry to say you're not going to live for Him very long. Uh, God's more mystery than He is anything else. I'm not saying God doesn't want to make Himself be known. I'm saying our, our, our puny, finite brains are so small, there's so little of them that we understand the way that He really is. And if your idea is, here's my box, God, jump in it and behave, it just ain't going to work. I'm just telling you. I, I, don't, I don't even know if I'm preaching or just talking, but, I, but I'm enjoying it, whether you are or not. I'm just saying, you ain't going to last very long. Why is John going through what he's going through? Because God is 90% of what he expects him to be. But see, that other 10% is really getting to him. And he's saying, why is it that he can do all these things? And I thought he was who he said he was. But when it comes to me in my life, he ain't doing for me what I need him to do for me. I see the reasons... Uh, for this crisis. But then let's ask this question now. Let's consider the reality of his question. Now that we know and understand all that to be true, what was John's question that he asked? Look down at verse number 19. John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, and he basically asked two questions. One is, art thou he that should come? Now, this is not a generic question. It's a very specific one. He's saying, are you or are you not the Messiah? I thought this was interesting. When you really think about John's interactions with the Lord Jesus, I don't know that John ever heard Jesus affirm His deity. I know that the voice speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And John no doubt heard that voice, but what does it even mean in the Jewish mind at that time to be a son of God? They probably to some degree thought they were all sons of God in some generic vague sense. We have no reason to believe that ministries of John and Jesus intersected very often. We know of a day when John looks forth and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He says, He's greater than me. I'm not worthy to loose His shoe latchet. But you know, I wonder if John is sitting in prison thinking, Was that him or was that me? Did I, did I concoct all this in my mind? Is he really who he says he is? As any good Bible believer, here's what he would have done. He would have took the life of the Lord Jesus and laid it alongside the truth of the Word of God and examined and considered it very carefully. But now there's some elements that of, of Jesus' personality and ministry that seem to be moving and operating in shadows of understanding that He cannot penetrate. And all of a sudden He's saying, are you really who you say you are? And then, consequently, should we look for another? In other words, are you who you say you are? And if you're not, I'm not going to stick with you. But if you are... I'm ready to die for you. What was the reality of this question? Well, I would say it was a few things. One, it was a question about God's person. The question fundamentally concerned the identity of Christ. Was He who He said He was? Every crisis of faith or pit of despair really boils down to one simple question. Is God who He says He is? I don't know if John understood how profound what he asked was, but we could summarize it in this way. If He is who He says He is, then there's nothing I can't go through with Him and for Him. If He's not who He says He is, 
then he ain't worth serving and living for anyway. You see, it really all comes down to whether you take God at His Word concerning His person and concerning His character. I know that's hard truth. I know it's not easy because your flesh squirms and my flesh squirms when we think about the absoluteness of that concept. But if we're really going to be logical, that really is the only question there is. Is He who He says He is? If He is, that's enough. If He is, that's enough. But preacher, I'm suffering. I know, but if He is who He says He is, He's enough for you. Preacher, I don't understand what I'm going through. I know that. But if He is who He says He is, you can trust Him. It really all boils down to this question, is He who He says He is? I would say it was a question of God's person. But now you might say, well, preacher... We could be a little more nuanced than that. And I suppose we could because if it's not a question about God's person, maybe John was thinking it was a question about God's perception. You see, if Christ was who He said He was, then here's the next question. Why then was He going through what He's going through? Did God see Him in His affliction? Or is God blind to His suffering? So there's only a few possibilities here. If He is who He says He is, then maybe He doesn't see what John's experiencing. Maybe that's why John sent disciples and said, go and let Jesus know I'm down here in the county jail and I'm suffering and just waiting for Him to show up and, and, and to set me loose. But we find that's not what happened for John. Very often when we have doubts about His person and we conquer those, the next thing the devil approaches us with is doubts about His perception. He'll say things like this, God doesn't understand what you're going through. Or God doesn't see what you're going through. Or God doesn't sense what you're going through. Can I let you know tonight, just let's go ahead and put that that rumor, that wicked lie straight out of hell. Let's put that to bed. We do have a high priest which is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He is touched in all points like as we are. He experienced what we went through. And He even presently knows what we're going through. It doesn't say, for we have not a high priest which was not touched, but it says which cannot be touched. In other words, He still feels our suffering. He still senses our affliction and our struggles and our experiences. John says, well, maybe He don't see me. Well, that's not true. And maybe John thought, okay, He is who He says He is and He knows what I'm going through. Maybe He just don't care. Maybe it was a question about God's pity. If Christ was who He said He was and God knew John was in prison, then did God really even care about John? How could God love John and allow him to suffer like this? I would say this is probably one of the nagging questions of humanity. seems to always be the thing that people that struggle to trust God or believe in God always come right back around to. They'll say, if God is real, then why does humanity suffer? Now, listen, I can give you the theological answer for that. But you'd look on YouTube and find somebody to say it better than I can. Can I just give you a practical point of counsel and encouragement tonight? Suffering is a way of human experience. It's not going to go away. And though it may be a fit excuse for you to criticize God, that excuse will not stand one day when you stand before it. For you are not alone in your suffering. All of humanity suffers to some greater or to some lesser degree. And yet it does not inhibit people from trusting God even through their suffering. Isn't it interesting that the first book of the Bible that the Holy Ghost ever gave humanity a pen to paper was the book of Job. It was not a story of man's salvation nor of man's sanctification, but rather it was a story of man's suffering. Could it be that God in His infinite wisdom knew what man needed to be equipped with? That before God ever knew anything, before man ever knew anything about God, He was going to taste suffering and he needed, if nothing else, to understand that though we are suffering, God is still in control. 
That just because we're experiencing difficulty in our life, that does not, listen, our difficulty does not rob Him of His divinity. He still is who He said He is. He probably thought, well, maybe God, maybe He just don't care. Maybe He just doesn't love me. But of course He loves you. Everything He's done in His life declares that He loves you. So maybe it was a question about God's plan. Uh, John probably thought, you know, maybe God's telling me to just wait and trust Him. But here's a problem with that. It seemed as though time was running out for John. Christ might take the throne from Herod, but would it be too late? Could he trust God's plan and God's timing? You know, John's concept of this whole kingdom thing was its imminence. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I don't think he did theological backflips to try to give a hundred definitions to that. I think at hand to John meant at hand. I think he believed it was any day now. But he's sitting in a prison house marking tallies on the wall and wondering just when God's going to come riding in and setting up His kingdom and turning Him loose. Can I tell you, He marked those tallies till the day the executioner carted them off. He never did experience the liberty that He anticipated happening. And yet God had not failed Him, for God fails no man. The question being this, can you trust Him? Not just with the plan, but with the timing. Even when it looks like timing's running out. I mean, that's what we learn, right? In John chapter 11, when God raises, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, is it too late for us? Ain't too late for God. And that our watch doesn't run like His watch. Trust the plan. Trust God's plan. Trust His providence. He is a trustworthy God. There's nothing He has ever done that could be construed as failing once it's witnessed within the full light of divine revelation and of the impact of eternity. He will not fail you. He will not fail me. Trust His plan. Trust His time. I see the reality of His question, but then I want you to notice the remedy to His crisis. Now, I'll tell you, if I was John, what I'd be waiting for, right? I'd be waiting for the Lord Jesus to send word for me to pack up my uh, belongings. He's going to be here soon to let me out of prison. But that is not the news that Jesus delivers unto him. Rather, he basically in his answer discloses three things of profound importance to John. Look at verse 20 with me. When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Now why did the Lord Jesus do this? Well, part of it was to affirm his messianic office. But part of it, I believe, was to display fully to John that his power was not diminished. Let me say it this way. In the midst of our crisis, we need to see the power of God revealed. And you say, well, preacher, I agree with you. I'm waiting for God to reveal His power to fix all my problems. Well, the way that the power of God was revealed here did not fix John's problems. Rather, it ministered in the lives of others. But, you know, even when God is doing for others the things that you're begging Him to do for you, You know what seeing Him do in those things in the lives of others does? It reminds us that God's power is not diminished and He could do that in our life if that was what was best for us. There ain't nothing hindering God. There ain't nothing you've got going on. You think you've got big problems. we got a bigger God. Your problems ain't big compared to God. I mean, this is a God that, that, that flung everything out in the midst of nothing and made something out of it. I mean, this is the God that measures the span of the, the universe in the span of His hand, that, me, that, that, that measured out the oceans in the, in the lines in His hand. I mean, th- th- this, is, this is the God that parted the Red Sea. This is the God that stopped the sun in its course. I mean, I'm saying, God, uh, 
uh, is not intimidated by your problems. And the reason He's not working in your situation is not because He is unable, but it is because He is unwilling. Why is He unwilling? Because He only desires what's best for you. You don't know what's best for you. I know we all think we do. And I don't think it's wrong to desire things in our life. I don't think it's wrong. Uh, if, if, if all you ever pray is, Lord, do whatever you want anyway, you ain't going to have much of a prayer life. You ought to be praying and asking God to do things in your life. But understand that when He does not do those things, it's not because He can't. It's because He won't. And if He won't, it's because He must have something better in mind. John needed to see the power of God revealed. Number two, he needed to see the plan of God reaffirmed. <laughs> I think this is interesting. Then Jesus answering said unto him, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. In other words, he says this, I know from that prison cell, John, it looks like things ain't going well. But you ought to see how it looks out here. Everything's going just exactly like God plan. You know, in moments of crisis in our life, it naturally looks like the whole world has fallen to pieces. If you've ever been in any kind of car wreck, you know that terrifying moment when all of a sudden you your stomach swallows your heart and your car goes into a tailspin and the whole world comes unglued and it all begins to roll around. But you know, ain't nobody outside of that car experiencing that. The person in the midst of the wreck, it looks like the world has come unhinged. But if you were to step outside of that, the sun would still be shining. The birds would still be singing. The world would still be clipping on. I'm saying this to you. We in the midst of our conflict and our crisis look at it and we think all the world's falling to pieces. No, we're just right smack in the middle of our problems. That's why things look like that. But if we could see things the way God can see things, we'd see that His plan is going right along exactly the way that He promised it would. It's always so funny. We do this every election cycle. I mean, I've pastored long enough to see a few of them pass. And just God's people do this every election cycle. We, it don't matter what happens. There will always be a group on whatever side that believes that the, whoever got elected, it is the end of everything. That's it. So-and-so got elected. Pack her up. Just go. I mean, it's just done. Go buy you some shotgun shells and go out in the woods somewhere and wait for them to come for you. It's over. It's done. That's it. It's it's all over. It's all done. We all say we believe things have to get worse before they get better. But don't we get awful tore up when things get worse without getting better? If we believe it has to get worse before it can get better, doesn't it stand to reason there will be some times it gets worse before it gets better? In our life personally, we all acknowledge and appreciate that we'll go through suffering and trials, and yet we're all shocked when we go through them. But if we could see things the way God could see things, what we would see is that His plan has not been diminished, derailed, delayed, or, or postponed in any way, shape, fashion, or form. He needed to see that God was still working. He needed to see that God was not disturbed by what was going on in society. He needed to see that God's throne room did not look like His prison cell. You need to understand tonight, God's throne room don't look like the heart and center of your calamity and problems. God is in control even when things look like they're out of control. And then I notice a final thing. I'm just going to mention it and, uh, and, and, and be done tonight. He needed to see the promise of God reassured. I think about what it says in Luke 7.23. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. 
I don't know about you, the first time I guess I ever really took note of this was reading a devotional from Dr. Vance Havner. You've probably read it before. Dr. Vance Havner, he called this the, uh, the forgotten beatitude. Uh, that in the scope of, of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are these, blessed are those, blessed are these, blessed are those. Here's one that was only fit for the prison house. But like a word fitly spoken in that moment, God delivered it unto John. But you know, I think so often we see that formula, blessed are they, or blessed is He, that it almost becomes like just sort of a religious byword. It just becomes something you you just say to people. You know, I see people walking around wearing shirts. I was down in Florida. I saw people walking around wearing shirts all the time. said, you know, like highly blessed and favored or something like that. And uh, yeah, I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying it. We, we use the word blessed and it just kind of becomes just something we say. Well, I just, I feel blessed. Hadn't God blessed us? But think about what God is saying to John in this moment. He's saying, John, if you can learn to trust me, even when your flesh is offended by me, there is great blessing to be found in that faith. There are going to be times that your flesh is deeply offended at what God's doing. It's not going to understand it. It's not going to be able to rationalize it. All the little sort of what I call cross-stitch quotes and verses that people give you about how things are going to look better and look brighter are just going to sound hollow and bitter. All the praise that you try to offer from your lips is going to be bitter as ashes. There's going to be times like that in your life. But you can, if you can learn, even when your flesh is offended by what God is doing, to trust Him, to not turn your back on Him, to recognize that it is your flesh that is wrong and it is not His faithfulness that is in question. You have found the key to whooping this world. When you can learn, you have found... You know, there's a reason the Lord Jesus says our faith is the victory that overcometh the world, Right? When we'll trust God, uh, there's nothing the devil can do about that. You remember what... I Well, I may just go ahead and say it, I guess. You, you remember in Luke chapter number uh, 19 or 23, I'm sorry, or 25, or somewhere kind of near the end of the book. The, uh, you remember whenever the Lord Jesus is speaking to Peter and He says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. What did He say? He didn't say that thy praise fail not. He didn't say that thy mercy fail not, that thy grace fail not. He didn't say that thy wisdom and thy prudence fail not. He says that thy faith fail not. The devil can't do anything about it when we resolve ourselves to trust Him even when things seem to be falling to pieces. He has no recourse. You remember there's only one weapon that the devil has, right? He steps back there and shoots those fiery darts. We quench those with that shield of faith. If we'll trust God, I'm not saying it'll be easy, but I'm saying if we'll trust God, even when we have no reason, humanly speaking, to trust Him, we have disarmed the devil from anything he can do in our lives. A great truth I remember hearing a man say back to this about the book of Job. is all throughout the book of Job, Job never blames his problems on the devil, but rather he attributes them to God's providence and places his faith in God throughout the whole thing. He never says, boy, the devil's whooping up on me. He says, though he, speaking of God, slay me, yet will I trust in him. He doesn't say, look at everything the devil took away from me. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't say, look at all these bad things we've received from the devil. He said, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm saying this throughout that whole thing. He wouldn't give the devil any credit. He just kept trusting God. 
Why did he wind up uh, double blessed in his life above what uh, the uh, human flesh or human work or human ingenuity could ever uh, provide for him? Because he was willing to trust God even when his flesh was offended by God. When you can learn to do that, you have taken a giant's stride in your spiritual development. For what can the devil do when we'll trust God even when it don't make sense, humanly speaking, to do so? What could the devil do in our life when, when we're willing to trust God even when it looks like God's messed up, even when God's plan looks like it ain't working out for our benefit, even when everything's falling apart? And we'll say, no, that's alright, I know he's good. I'll go ahead and trust Him. What is there left for the devil to do? He says, blessed. You say, preacher, I want a blessed life. Well, John had a blessed life. But it was not through the path of success, fabulous cash and prizes. Rather, it was through trusting God even when His flesh was mad about it. Even when His flesh provoked Him about it. Even when His flesh said, you're a fool, John. He's going to let you die in this prison. By the way, His flesh was right about it. But in the midst of all of it, John said, no, that's all right, I'm going to trust you. He said, preacher, how do you know that he trusted him? Well, he died, didn't he? I I would venture a a guess if John had stood up and said, all right, Herod, I'm ready to endorse your marriage to Herodias. Herod would let him go. Uh, Herod beheaded John because John never was willing to compromise on what he said. I, I got more message, but I don't, I'm not, and that's not a threat, I promise. I just, but I do have more message. One of the things I was going to say about the results of this crisis was an unwavering perseverance. Uh, John was resolved to trust God in the midst of it. And you know, if we'll just trust Him, He'll give us the strength to stand. I don't know about you, you probably don't ever think about this, but I worry sometimes that I'll have backbone enough to stand when it's hard. That, I, that I'll have the faithfulness when things ain't easy. But you know, that faithfulness never was rooted in my strength or your strength or John's strength. He said, all right, you said who you are who you say you are. That's good enough for me. I'm willing to trust you in the midst of it. It was a low moment for this great man. But we find out, listen, it wasn't the last moment for him. For he entered the halls of glory after having died a martyr's death. The very last martyr of the Old Testament was John the Baptist. The very last prophet was the very last martyr of the Old Testament. And he didn't walk into heaven with his head held low. Because the Lord Jesus had said, the only way that you can be better than John is to be born again. If you can't be born again, John's it. It was a low moment for this great man. We all have low moments. The question is, will we trust him in the midst of it? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I don't know what you're going through, but I bet God does. In fact, I know He does. No sense in hiding it from Him, for He knows. You might as well just go ahead and deal with Him. Preacher, I'm going through a low time. Well, you're not the first, you're not the last, and you're not the only. But you'll find that God is sufficient for your low moments. You'll find that even in the midst of your calamity and suffering, that He is faithful. If you'll meet Him, if you'll come to Him, if you'll trust Him, you'll find He's enough and His grace is sufficient. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name with our heads bowed.